The talk today is called Resting Power. And I would like to dedicate it to a friend of mine who died near here two months ago, especially because she was the person who said, why don't you do retreats in Tiru? Um, nine years ago. <coughs> and she organized, she helped organize the first one. <coughs> I met her in 1991 in Lucknow with our teacher Papaji Punjaji, and she lived here, in, not here, but in near Tiru, in Tiru, with her partner. And she was, to me, she seemed to be equally at home with the kind of supreme teachings, and everyday grounded reality. She was a fabulous cook and gardener. She took care of me in one of my worst moments when I found out my boyfriend had slept with my best friend. She made me soup and gave me high teachings at the same time. <laughs> the name she was given, Bajra, is hard, it's hard to translate. It could mean lightning bolt. Do you know what that is in English? Like from the sky? <laughs> Electricity. It could be a stone that's harder than a diamond. That in some cultures is believed to exist, and in some cultures is believed that it comes into existence when lightning hits the earth. So it's that kind of combination of lightning teachings and groundedness. That I would like to talk about today. And before I begin the talk, really, I, I want to also add a thanks to my friend, or our friend, we could say, some of you know Kevin. He came for a surprise visit today at lunch, and he's the one who brought us here to this ashram, which by day, whatever we are, is it five? You might not be loving as much as when you walked in, or you might be loving it more, but it's one of the best places we know on the planet for retreat, despite the noise, etc. So, a real person and a real place, not ideal. Ramana Maharshi, who was the saint who most recently gathers people to this mountain. And it was recorded in conversation with him that he said, there is not, there is no investigation into what he calls Atman. So he said, apparently, there is no investigation, we cannot investigate what is real in the supreme sense. Atman usually would be translated as soul, but in a way we're talking about not just the individual soul, 
but something that the individual has access to that is impersonal, that is beyond the individual. So he said we can't actually investigate that. The investigation can only be into what is not that, what is not supreme, let's say. We can investigate what is not really real or true. like digging through earth and rock to find water for a well. So he was asked how to practice, and he said, like digging a well. But he also said that we are like neck deep in water, crying for water. So we're like water, <laughs> or in water, and we need to dig for water he said. This is just one man's opinion based on his experience. But what is missing in the image of digging for water to find, to make a well, and again a well is not just water for me, a well is what stays for whoever may come by generations from now whoever may fall in, etc. <laughs> but elsewhere, Ramana also talks about practice as power. That gradually we start to have more and more momentum in the way I would say it is our, in our connection, the current of our connection to what's real gets stronger. So it's not just that we're digging through what's solid to get to what's, what flows. <clears throat> but as we keep digging, even when we still don't find water and still don't find water, there's a current that gets stronger. And what does it get stronger than? In Ramana's words, he says it gets stronger than our habits, the habits of mind. I would say we could maybe spread that out a little bit further. We could include the current gets stronger than habits of mind, biology, and anything else we may not yet know about. We could either define the mind as something really big and collective that we can dig through, or we can say that the current gets stronger as we practice, as we dig. It gets stronger than everything else so that we kind of unleash the mind at rest. The mind not busy with. Unleash. Okay, here's my leash. I'm a dog. And I take it off, or it falls off. She asked about the word unleash. And the, the cool thing about unleashing the mind, so releasing the mind from the habits, from the ways that it's been formed, 
so that it reacts in a certain way. <clears throat> being released from that and being, letting it be at rest, when we come to rest, what we find is total power. And you could almost say total action. There's no holding it back. Usually when we're in action and when we're in power, we're also in habits. And so it's easy to feel the power, the heat, it makes noise. There's friction. And so, for example, we do things on purpose and we know we're doing them. And if it's something that we are glad we did, we're happy, we're proud. We gave money to the beggar. Or if you have a different kind of habit, we didn't give money to the beggar, we just looked and met the person. Or whatever way of going across a habit, seeing through a habit. There's a kind of noticing in that way of action. Noticing myself doing it. That's not free. That's not total. It's self-conscious in a way that weighs us down. So the language is a little, can be confusing because we want to be self-conscious. We want to be conscious of ourselves so that we could learn. But in English, if we are self-conscious, then we're getting in the way of observing ourselves. Of we're getting in the way of consciousness, I could say. Yeah. It's not that it's subtle, it's just that the language is, it happens to be one word for two opposite things. So it's good that you ask. I, I try again. <laughs> to be self-conscious could mean that there is awareness of what's going on. And so I notice when I feel jealous, I notice when I feel um, tired. There's noticing of this and that. But I could also, there's another way of being, and there's just noticing that as it is. That would be one version of self-conscious. But usually in English, when we, when we say, I felt self-conscious, we mean I was too aware of myself as separate. I felt I could see them seeing me. I was, it was as if I was more aware of other people looking at me than of me experiencing my experience. It's basically a form of embarrassment, basically, you could say. The usual way in English when we say self-conscious is a way of saying I felt embarrassed or ashamed even. Paralyzed by watching you watch me. It could be watching me watch me. There doesn't need to be someone else there. <laughs> I could be watching myself 
I could be watching myself watch myself. I could be watching myself giving, trying to do good. I could be watching myself do bad. It's like an extra person inside me. There's a sense of criticism in that, like self-criticism. Well, I could be proud of myself. I could be impressed how well I'm doing in my meditation. But I think most often people report the critical. <laughs> uh, I think it's harder to be aware of <laughs> and to admit, maybe, if I am watching myself and proud of how I see myself in that self-conscious way. So to, to add, to, to include more people's experience, usually I watch myself and judge myself in a negative way. And it's, that is the main habit, that self-consciousness, that, that being divided, that being two people in, in me, <clears throat> I would say is the main obstacle. <clears throat> and lucky, lucky enough, we need obstacles. <clears throat> Thank goodness we, we actually need them. If we didn't have any obstacle, there would be nothing to dig through to find the water. There would be nowhere to get, in English, the word is traction. So if um, like the road to my house in Spain, if it rains, is too slippery to get traction. <laughs> and so it's like ice skating with four-wheel drive. <laughs> Not enough obstacle <laughs> to um, help us move through. So I'd like to talk about obstacles to freedom as our help, as our main, one of our main helps to freedom. The first kind of obstacle to become aware of would be our um, attraction towards the negative. Our attraction, this is what Shimon is kind of pointing out really, our attraction towards criticism. Criticism. In general, I think luckily not every single person, but in general, we feel kind of comfortable criticizing. It's also quite easy to do. It's quite easy to criticize. It's easy to criticize even a place like this. And there's something comfortable about criticizing, even criticizing myself, which also tears us apart at the same time. But it seems like it's a kind of substitute for power. If I feel I can criticize, if I can be in a place of criticizing, it's like getting a substitute sense of the power that we sense is in aliveness. 
And so when we're here trying to meditate, not sure what meditation is, and experience comes along. First of all, any experience may come along, and if we are attracted to criticize, we can criticize anything. We might feel joyful and we can think that's too superficial or that's just excitement, not joy, that's not deep. Or if we feel anything unpleasant whatsoever, then it's very, very easy to think that something's wrong. And so a couple of days ago on the board was this paper about what's usually called the five obstacles or five hindrances from the Buddhist tradition. And the first thing we could take um, notice of is that this is a tradition that's the Buddhist tradition apparently started 2,500 years ago and more. And they're talking about these five obstacles that come when one meditates. So if we have the chance to experience an obstacle, we are in such good company. We can read the um, background, we could read in reverse, the fact that there is a teaching about five obstacles that come when you meditate or try to meditate, means that when you try to meditate, obstacles come, therefore you're doing fine. <laughs> this is what happens to everyone. Maybe not every single person, but basically every person. Including the ones who end up being called Buddha later on, including the ones who were never called Buddha but were, including the ones that are still doing our best, struggling along. <laughs> Second of all, I would say in my experience with those hindrances, those obstacles, Obstacle, I don't find to be a helpful word. It doesn't describe the experience to me. We could say unpleasant experience. Or we could say what I call it there, we could call it unpleasant sign of breakthrough. Another image for, or metaphor for what it's like is like if you're, the airplane's taking off. First of all, there's a rumbling as you go along the ground. And second of all, many times as you pass through different levels of seeming nothing or clouds, there's turbulence, which means the plane goes like this. Turbulence, for me, is, is, a, is the best word I could think of so far for obstacle. You're moving through. You're moving from... <clears throat> one dimension to another. And it can be scary, it can be unpleasant, it can be not a big deal, it can be fun. I want to give one example from my experience, so it's not just a metaphor. When I was 21, 23 years ago, I was trying to do 
a one-day self-retreat, mostly in my room. And towards evening time, I started to feel what now, if I look on the list of hindrances, would be called restlessness. But basically, I felt really uncomfortable here, especially here in the heart, chest, but also in the belly. And things were kind of moving around in a way that I didn't recognize. The kind of like wanting to get out of your skin feeling. <coughs> and I was one of those who entered meditation as a college student on a college study program. Meditation was part of the college study program, and I was a good girl, and I was a good student. And so they told us, don't read, don't write, etc., etc. And so I didn't read, I didn't write when I did retreat. If it was time to do walking meditation, I did walking meditation. If it was time to do sitting meditation, I did sitting meditation. If you were not supposed to move, I didn't move. But what this movement that was not mine inside my body was telling me was I needed to like stand here and flop here, like this. But that wasn't walking meditation and that wasn't sitting meditation. <laughs> but finally I had no other choice, so I, I flopped. And after flopping, <laughs> it became clear that I needed to write a particular person a letter. But I couldn't write because I was on retreat. <laughs> I, this is, I'm serious. This was where my mind was. <clears throat> but after a while, it was clear that I, I had really no choice. I had to write this letter. And it was an important letter. I knew it was an important letter. So I broke my rule and my habit, my new habit of not writing, and I got out the paper. And I definitely did not regret doing that, even though it <laughs> was the beginning of probably the worst year of my life. <laughs> the letter opened up things in the past that had never been opened before, that needed to be opened. So the ha there was the habit of not speaking, and then the letter was saying, this happened, didn't it? And the answer came back, yes, it did. And so that kept happening for the next year. A lot of turbulence. Exactly. <laughs> I wasn't laughing so much that time. <laughs> so on the way to unleashing the deep mind, 
Can I use the word unleashing now? Is it, or is, should I use another one? It seems like there's unleashing a lot of places of tangle, entanglement, knots in the mind. And this is a lot of what I think Ramana meant by we can't actually investigate that what is the real mind, let's say, that has no tangle. But what we can do and what we must do is investigate those tangles and unleash them. Along the way, it can be really helpful not to do a, a usual practice of making an extra knot on top of every knot we find. I was very lucky in that year, after writing the letter, to meet the first person. First I struggled alone. It just so happened that all my close friends had gone away for the year. <laughs> so I was on my own. And I saw a poster and I went to the workshop and I met the, the woman and she helped me a lot. And in our first meeting, I think, she said, along with really helping me and helping my energy be more free so that I could read more than one line of a paragraph in the book since I was studying college. In college that was helpful. <laughs> she said, I also went through the same, similar story, and eventually I came to know that that's not my identity and you will also come to know that that's not who you are. You will come to a day when there is no scar. That was really helpful for me to know at the beginning of finding a wound, cleaning the wound, and not knowing what else to do with the wound. It's easy when we find something painful, partly out of fear of the pain and partly out of wanting to get it right and partly out of wanting to be involved in this good process of healing. Whenever any sign of our wound comes up, the label quickly comes, oh, the wound. So in this case, sexual abuse. So my friend told me, I now know I'm not a survivor of sexual abuse, though I was. With the teacher, Papaji, that I mentioned, that was also Vajra's teacher, <coughs> was a student of Ramana Maharshi. <coughs> Twice he gave, a, he gave a teaching about this, <coughs> this area, this subtle area. When some of my friends and I went to Lucknow to meet him, 
we had to stay. There was the only place to stay were some really crappy guest houses in the middle of the city. How many people, other than Nadia and people who have come to meet Open Dharma in Lucknow, have been to Lucknow or heard of Lucknow? But not for Open Dharma, yeah. It's not um, big in the tourist guidebooks. And so when it started to get really, really hot, it gets hotter than it gets here, 45. People sometimes would say a thing or two about the pollution and the heat. The pollution in the evening would be so thick that you couldn't see down past one block. You could hardly see one block. So sometimes people might make a comment or two. And Papaji one time was laughing and said, it's the word pollution that pollutes. So I know I'm walking on shaky ground here <coughs> because it would be easy to always say, oh, it's just the word that's pollution. There's no real pollution in the world. And then <coughs> do dirty things. But if you can see the point of his joke is not that we were doing anything about the pollution. We were just complaining criticizing. And that thought is empowering the whole area of pollution. We're not, it's not empowering us to clear the air. It's putting us <clears throat> in a kind of strong tension against, in hatred of. And that is the origin of pollution. So when, just when we notice something unpleasant going on, if we could consider that it may be just unpleasant, it may be turbulence on the way up or down, it may be pollution. What is our response to pollution? Get away. <laughs> For example. But if, if one feels one is receiving life's fulfilling teachings, <laughs> then one swallows the pollution with a smile. It's more possible to take the joke. So when a negative emotion comes and we think what a terrible emotion or what a terrible person or what a terrible cause of the emotion, Ramana said that very thought is the obstacle. 
because I'm separating from my experience to criticize. On top of, I'm separating, and on top of that, I criticize. If we think of when we received help from someone else, was it when they were separating from us and criticizing us? Krishnamurti says, meditation is hard work. So we call it a deep rest retreat. <laughs> but now that you're here, <laughs> it demands the, the higher form of discipline. Discipline is a word you know. Yeah? Not conformity, so not doing, looking around, how does, how does it go here? How do people dress? How do they sit? How do they lie down? How do they eat? Do they brush their teeth two or three or four times a day, etc.? We unconsciously do that, though. So it's, it, it is funny. <laughs> and it's good to, to observe. Where there may be a tendency to want to hide among the herd or to stand out from the herd. Not imitation, not obedience. So not our usual sense of discipline. So meditation, this is Krishnamurti still, is not an activity of isolation, but is action in everyday life. So this is another level of what I mean by where there's, I separate from and criticize, or I'm in. And I'm in action. But what kind of action? Habitual action or something else? So meditation is not an activity of isolation, but is action in everyday life, which demands cooperation, sensitivity, and intelligence. And Krishnamurti goes on to say it, that we need to have a foundation Our life needs to be a foundation for meditation. That foundation needs to be <clears throat> what he's calling righteous, which again, what a word. <laughs> what he means by righteous is freedom from envy, greed, and the search for power. He's saying that if in our life there could be, there will be, and when there is freedom from envy, greed, and the search for power. Then the real meditation can be active for us. Usually we want to make our life righteous and so we follow the rules, like I did. Or <laughs> we try to enforce, we try to make there be no envy, no search for power, no greed. He said, but 
the freedom from these does not come through the activity of the will. So it's not by trying to make it so. But by being aware of them through self-knowing. Without knowing these activities of self, we could say these entanglements of mind, meditation becomes sensuous excitement and therefore of very little significance. Earlier he says, an escape and of no value whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a strong encouragement not to just copy, not to just follow rules, not to use some idea that's implanted in our mind as something to measure ourselves by, and to kind of take seriously but with sensitivity, cooperation, and intelligence, when we notice envy, greed, and search for power. The short summary of envy, greed, and search for power, I would say, is what I spoke about last time, is a feeling of lack, a feeling of not enough. And sometimes that's easier to find easier to feel. Because if I notice greed, envy, or search for power, I judge myself so harshly that I don't go anywhere next. It's just the entanglement that is like when I say pollution, and then I don't do anything about pollution, and I don't also receive the teachings that I went for. Any question or comment so far? Please feel free. Um, can you explain what you said about being the criticized criticism being the something about the energy of life? Um, if I could say what I said, yeah, I'm repeating the question. Thank you for reminding me. I'm not quite as spaced out as I was the last few years, but still am. (laughs) Virginie is asking what I said before about criticism and the power of aliveness. And I said that I think a lot of our attraction towards that stance of criticizing is it some kind of substitute for that like hum, that power of aliveness that we sense is. It's that, it's a, when I criticize, there's a way that I kind of feel as if I have power over, I'm better than, or I'm in a place that, or if I'm criticizing myself, at least I know what's what, even though it's completely wrong. <laughs> I have an interpretation to hold on to. And so I have, I have a feeling of control, even if it's not true. So Krishnamurti is saying, observe. And what he, what he means, I would say, is really notice, but with 
lots of love and at the same time taking what you see as completely impersonal. All of these tangles that mostly we didn't create and we did not create with our own hands. But we do experience them. The trouble is when we go and look for them, first of all we go and look with, for them with a hammer in our hand. We already hate them before we find them, first of all. Then when we find them it hurts, and so the hammer automatically goes down. And so what about the whole space for even noticing what's happening, much less feeling what's happening, much less noticing how it functions to cover up? What does it cover up? Or is it that kind of turbulence that's more about a, re a release that is in action, in process? So these two kinds of unpleasant. One is where it's unpleasant because it's like paralyzed aliveness, wound. And one is the pain of growing, the pain of releasing and growing. Either way, before we even feel it, we notice it's a little unpleasant and we try to kill it. Naturally, because we're on survival mode. If we accept that if Buddha said these five obstacles come when you meditate, this is the human soup. It's not about you, but you have the chance to notice from your experience, from our experience, what you see in yourself and other people, how it works, and what's true and what's not true. So that's part of our work. Noticing the attraction to negativity and <clears throat> having enough space from that to see how the negativity works, see how envy, greed, search for power works. Fearlessly seeing, feeling. But I think that maybe for some of these guys, like Ramana and Krishnamurti, the whole other part of the path must have come to them so easily that they forgot to write it down or talk about it. The whole other part is, is actually empowering the connection, which feels at first like joy. So spending as much time as possible with joy. Spending as much time as possible with lightness, with brightness, with what makes you feel alive. And slowly that gets more refined. So maybe at first you only feel alive when you're speeding on the curvy mountain roads on a motorcycle. Okay. Wear a helmet. <laughs> Fine. As you ride, notice the difference between the adrenaline rush, which is an escape, which is a cover-up, and the hum of aliveness and be drawn into the hum, that, the power. The lovely thing about the process of refining is that 
it doesn't work to force it. And so that's another thing that we can observe. Every time I force it, it doesn't work. And also, every time I let the force of habit take over, it doesn't work. And so we have both hands empty. I'll try. Um, every time we try to force ourselves to be better, let's say, it doesn't work. We can notice in our own experience. And also, every time we let the force of habit do for us, it also doesn't work. And so, we have nothing left to hold on to, except a slight sense that there must be another way. So sometimes we observe all of these different movements in the mind. And more often, my recommendation is more often, connect in whatever way you can to love, joy, lightness, brightness. Lightness in the sense of not heavy and lightness in the sense of humor funny. Even envy is funny. The search for power is hilarious. <coughs> Especially when we see that it, it always is that slapstick kind of humor that means slapstick. Ernst, help me. <laughs> is it? Okay. No. Okay, well, it's like, it would be like, bunk. <laughs> <laughs> Someone falls down and it's funny. Why? We don't know, but people laugh. Yeah. We see ourselves reaching for power, and of course we fall on our face, and it is funny. Because the power of aliveness is still with us, whether we're standing or falling. And sometimes that falling is just what we needed. I want to tell another Papaji story. One time I had had a strong experience. And so Papaji said we had to celebrate. And so we had a big party. Big party. It, luckily in those days we were like 10 people. <laughs> Later, it was 200 people. What, what was the experience? Oh, you know, the moon, and then not sleeping, being awake, chilled out, <laughs> images flashing by that were not me or mine, and then kind of peaceful quality. Nice experience. I think that the party was about something else and someone else, probably, that maybe without, he wanted someone to get the envy thing, like, I want to have a party too. It, I don't think it was really about me. But it happened to be around my birthday, and someone gave me these big, huge ankle bells for my birthday, very noisy. <laughs> <coughs> and I was wearing them the day of the party. 
And before the lunch, it was just lunch. Like <laughs> it wasn't even the lunch I wanted. <laughs> because there was not a big enough pot to make pe pasta for 10 people. But luckily, before the lunch, we had the, what they call satsang, so that's when you get together and, and feel, experience truth. And luckily also with Papaji, with this teacher, it was that kind of what I'd said about my friend Bhadra, like one second he might be telling someone which train number would be the right train to take when they go to that town, get out here, have sweets from that shop, meet these people, my friends in the, you know, that house, then get back on this bus to go and stay there, this very practical help. And then he might just suddenly turn to someone and ask them the question that they needed to hear. Maybe eight, maybe ten. It was very hot. <laughs> there was a lot of pollution. <laughs> It, like week by week, people left as it got hotter and hotter. Because when you tell the story, it sounds so exciting, but you just, you're sitting in the room, he's writing some letters, and then he looks up and asks, you know, did you sleep okay last night? And then maybe something exciting happens, but it's not like to put in the newspaper. So why, if you're hot, why? <laughs> So another one more ordinary moment like that happened towards the end of the satsang. Uh, I think Papaji had asked me to write down my experience or something like that. And so I had given him this paper and he'd read it and, and then I sat down. But then I had this feeling that I could go back up, which is about like from here to Said, so or less, what is that, four, three, three meters maybe, not far, to go back up, he was sitting on a wooden bed, and give him a kiss on the cheek. And this was before like people came from the Osho Ashram and there was a lot of kissing going on. <laughs> we were all like wearing our proper clothing and not having physical contact in public. And, and so that was like a big problem for the good girl in me to go the three meters and, and give the peck on the cheek. But I couldn't not do it also. <laughs> I tried to ignore the instruction. And then I was literally like off of my, actually the cushions were very much like this, weren't they? Without the gold, just like yellow cushions. I was literally like this. This is a room of eight to ten people. It's like a little noticeable with bells on. I was literally <laughs> not sitting down anymore, but up <laughs> like a sprinter ready to go. <laughs> couldn't go, couldn't go, couldn't go, couldn't go. And of course, finally, I went. Because he was really like my grandfather after all. So I went, and I just peck on the cheek. And I was happy because I was done. I did my job. <laughs> and just as I was leaving, so peck on the cheek. I wanted to get back to my cushion as fast as possible. 
he just had time to say into my ear that no one else could hear. You see, there was no obstacle. There had been no obstacle. There was no, like, wrestling bodyguards, which there were later, <laughs> trying to block anyone from the bed where he sat. But I could only feel how there was no obstacle after I had given the kiss. So as we start to accept all of these workings and tangles in and wounds in the mind, the kind of activity that there is in the mind, if we accept it as completely human, completely normal, from all ages, it's not just about now in this dark age with all of these computer technology making us worse. It's always been, or let's say for thousands of years has been. So what's the big deal? Let's just see what it's, what's going on here. And as we develop momentum in our current of connection through joy, lightness, brightness, being more and more free to be ourselves, so sometimes it feels like, ah, I can be myself. And other times it feels like, ah, I cannot be myself. I can be not myself. <laughs> I can do not what I would usually do. There does start to come a sense of the quietness. Even when the mind is busy, there can be also a sense of the quietness. And Krishnamurti gives a really, I find, helpful metaphor for this mind, which feels like being at rest. We feel like we are at rest. But he says, <clears throat> it is tremendously active and therefore quiet. So it's like the reverse of when we hate the pollution so much that there's nothing left in us to either receive the teaching or do something about the pollution. The interest in all of that activity as being something to do with me, something special, gets less and there's more access to the quiet even when the, there's the busyness. We can still access the quiet. Sometimes it's just like sensing as if something behind me while I'm busy. And sometimes we feel more like ah, we're in it. Krishnamurti says, it's like a big dynamo, which I actually don't even know what a dynamo is, but I guess like an engine of some kind. It, it uh, generates power, I think. A machine that creates power, maybe? Is that it? By moving? Okay. So like on a bicycle, by pedaling, you're moving the machine and it, it creates electricity. 
So a machine that makes power. That is work so a big dynamo that is working perfectly hardly makes a sound. It is only when there is friction that there is noise. We can also say it is only when there's friction that there's heat, that there's smoke, that there's pollution, etc. And so as we more often have permission to slide in or to sense that it's there even when we feel completely caught up. It could help our honest sensing to know that as we come more and more often to rest, it's a great activity, more active than we could be with our activity, with our habits and with our will. It has more power. But it's not felt. So sometimes in meditation the power is felt. We feel like an electric current going through or whatever. Or a, an attack of the mind. We can feel. But as we come to rest there is still activity but almost impossible to sense. And very trustworthy. So when there is heat and friction and noise, we could feel a little further back for that quietness and keep resting into that power that doesn't need to show itself that doesn't need friction to prove itself, that doesn't make noise to be known. It's known in a, another kind of knowing. Even while we do hard work of meditation, more and more we can let something rest. Let another kind of activity take over. Thank you for listening. May our practice and our lives be fulfilled and be part of a momentum towards liberation for all beings in all places and times.